0: Hi, I'm Yves Jacquier, and you are listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis, and I'm joined today by Yves Jacquier, the Production Studio Services Executive Director at Ubisoft Montreal, and head of a very industry-unique program called La Forge. Uh, The La Forge program at Ubisoft is a group that is the bridge between the academics and research institutions who are doing cutting-edge work on AI and ML and machine learning and the production teams who are making the games that need to adopt these new breakthroughs and these new tools. If you have any interest in how artificial intelligence and machine learning can be used to help drive forward the creative process, to unlock new potentials for the, the makers and the creators of the games that we all know and love and play every day, I think you'll find this conversation with Yves Jacquier very illuminating. So enjoy. Yves, thank you very much for joining us today. We always start with the same thing, ask our guests to introduce themselves, talk a little bit about, you know, what you do, and I guess maybe a little bit about what your interests are. Obviously, you know, some of your interests probably directly overlap with what you do in your career, but I'm just interested in in getting a little bit more to know about, you know, kind of you and your path and I guess sort of how that path might have influenced you to focus on what you're focusing on in your career. Hi, Ben.
0: So first, thank you for giving me the opportunity to contribute to, to, to the podcast. I had, I had a chance to uh, listen to a couple of them, and uh, I think it's a great initiative. Uh, it's very inspiring.
1: Oh, I'm so, glad uh, you
0: like it. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah, I'm having a blast doing it, really. These are th- these podcast episodes, recording them, researching them, talking to people like you, it's a high point in my week, so I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, but now the pressure is on me, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Be yeah. smart. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'd say that
0: I have a, a pretty generalist profile. Uh, okay. I started in France, working um, in electronics and signal processing. Okay. Then turned uh, to a PhD in particle physics, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. I had a chance to participate. I don't know if you heard about that. The um, ATLAS experiment at CERN. Uh, I was focusing on the what's called the liquid argon calorimeter readout chain. It's been a while.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. You know, I like reading uh, before bedtime. Uh, familiarize myself with all of that just as uh, something to uh, help me fall asleep at night. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I definitely know of CERN and uh, probably uh, that's about it. Everything else you just mentioned is, is Greek to me, but it sounds fascinating.
0: It's, uh, the, um, you might have heard uh, what the experiment has uh, discovered. It was the Higgs boson back yes, in I, 2012. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that so. made it into, you know, that made it into pop culture. Yes, exactly. So that was that very
0: experiment I had the chance to participate to. Then I moved to uh, telecoms uh, when cell phones uh, were booming and finally decided to move in Montreal in 2003. Okay, started at Ubisoft as a project manager and uh, obviously 17 years later, I'm still at Ubisoft. When I started, I didn't know anything about the gaming industry and I was not an avid gamer myself. And uh, since then, I had um, the chance to lead several positions in Ubisoft on online technologies, IT, production services studio, and uh, more recently, heading uh, a department of uh, R&D called LaForge. So right. I, I made other things in my life, like uh, a lot of music. And actually, uh, I feel ashamed to say that just after David Usher was uh, also <laughs> on the same podcast, but I released a couple of, of CD, uh, CDs a, a, a while ago. Um, still trying to keep up with music. And actually, uh, I can disclose that I'm in a disco band
1: where 10 oh, stage. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> that is the best thing I've ever heard. From CERN to La Forge and AI at Ubisoft and disco. That When you say you're a generalist, man, you you're not messing around. All right, I'm going to make sure that David Usher hears your album. I'm taking a note here after this podcast. (laughs) I'm going to find your album. I'm going to track it down. I'm going to send it to David. (laughs) Maybe you guys can do a collaboration and, I don't know, have an AI bandmate or something. (laughs) Okay, so so that's amazing. Obviously, you've spent much of your career or sort of the last 17 years at Ubisoft. I'm sure everyone here knows of Ubisoft, right? You know, oh yeah, Ubisoft Assassin's Creed and, you know, whatever, like Rainbow and Clancy and all that sort of stuff. I, you know, I worked at Ubisoft, as you know, for many years and I've been in the beast, as it were. And I'm wondering if you can help people sort of understand a little bit about Ubisoft because it's not just another developer. Ubisoft is, is a bit of a sort of special organization. So can you talk just a little bit very broadly about kind of... Why you think Ubisoft is interesting? Maybe what's a little bit different and special about it? Sure. First, let's talk briefly about the product side of the
0: equation. So you mentioned Assassin's Creed, for example, and yes, Ubisoft is known to for for big AAA open world games. Assassin's Creed is one of them. Division, Watchdogs, Far Cry, to name a few. But what's interesting is that in reality, we have a Broader portfolio, if you think about that, that covers a wider audience with Mm -hmm. franchises just like Just Dance, which is more for the casual party players, up to Rainbow Six for the professional gamers. So it's really interesting to have a a company that offers the possibility to work on, you know, big deployment game, big open world, as well as a smaller experience for different audiences. That's really one thing compared to other companies who really rely on one brand, one type of product and uh, capitalize on that. Yeah. And as you have worked uh, at, at Ubisoft also, you might know that there's the people side of the equation also at Ubisoft. It really feels, although we're big, we have, we're in many countries and uh, we have something like 40 studios uh, and it's, it's changing all the time. So I'm mm-hmm. sure of the, of the real number. Anyways, it's people as a community. It's always people over processes. Well, I guess you know what I mean. It's sure. It retranslates in an um, entrepreneurship mindset mm-hmm. and uh, a really uh, a commensure attitude. So by saying this, I, I do realize that um, my very atypical profile for the gaming industry is a very typical Ubisoft story, actually.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you're absolutely right that you know, when I was at UB and probably before and certainly after it, it was definitely a home to people with Mm. atypical profiles. And I guess you've sort of touched upon it just a little bit and we'll get into it, you know, much more deeply in a few minutes when we talk about kind of production services and that kind of thing. But when you think about a single publisher that needs to be world-class in terms of first-person shooters, world-class in terms of open-world action adventure, world-class in terms of free-to-play monetization, world-class in terms of, you know, casual kids' games, etc., etc. And who historically has invested a ton of resources and time and energy into tool development, into tooling and, and, and into kind of building at least part of their own stack. You can see how, you know, in terms of what Ubisoft needs it 's huge right it, and mm. and not just huge in terms of headcount but huge in terms of a diversity of experiences you know quite frankly it 's almost hard to imagine someone with a you know a passion and an excitement for technology and entertainment who couldn 't find an opportunity somewhere at Ubisoft because of how wide-ranging that organization is and how many different initiatives and different studios it has.
0: You're totally right. And on top of that, this entrepreneurship mindset, it's really something that people encourage. So if you feel that you want to create something that does not exist at Ubisoft, people will let you try things. And also that, I think it's its really unique. I remember when I first, and we'll talk about that later probably, but the, the first time I talked about uh, La Forge and working uh, with uh, universities. I talked about that to, to to the execs at Ubisoft, or to, uh, from the studio, from the headquarter. And the idea was really, hey, why shouldn't we start to publish on technologies that will be on game in three years from now? And, yeah. and, and you know, in, in an industry that's pretty much secretive most of the time, people let me try it, mm-hmm. and they trusted me. So that's really the kind of, of story that happens at Ubisoft all
1: the time. Okay, well, let's talk about production services, mm-hmm. again, because lots of devs don't have production services, right? So what is production services at Ubisoft? And then let's talk about Folge, and please help us understand the mandate, what you guys are trying to achieve, and then we'll dive deeper into you know some of the specific achievements and specific areas of interest of LaFouche in, in, in follow-up questions.
0: Yeah, sure. So in, in a nutshell, the, the production services studios are teams that contribute to many production at the same time. Right. Uh, so for example, in Montreal, we have uh, Alice, that mm-hmm. uh, is a department to capture and deliver data like uh, motion capture, voices, photogrammetry, they deliver that to all productions. We also have a Helix that specializes in whatever linear content for production. Think about trailers, cinematics, or icons for RPG icons, for example. We also have the User Research Lab, which provides insightful feedback on our games through playtest, telemetry, biometry, cognitive studies, and all those sort of things. And finally, we have LaForge, which is an R&D department. But to really understand what LaForge is and what it does... I think it's important to first understand the the problem we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. If you take a step back, and that's especially true for creative industries, our success comes from our innovations, Mm -hmm. but our sustainability comes from our ability to reproduce them, right? Yeah. And if you think about that, every technology, every process has a life cycle because first it takes time to provide convincing results. But when most obstacles are overcome, that's when you improve your recipe over time uh, before you reach a plateau, and that's true for any technology, every organization. Yeah. And the issue is that it's always very difficult to self-assess this plateau uh, because you are likely in a situation where the activity is very successful, the organization is very well structured to reproduce this success most of the time in silos and. Um, to take a concrete example, if you think about the cell phone, that, the cell phone brands that you had 15 years ago, which is not that long, or the movie renting store you stop by to get <laughs> the latest movies, at that time, 15 years ago, it was working very well. It was very healthy business yes. at that time.
1: <clears throat> yeah, who but would then, have thought that Blockbuster was just exactly, going to completely
0: disappear? Exactly. And then that the issue, you have a new technology that emerges. and At one moment in time, it produces worse results if you compare that to your wild oil recipes. Mm -hmm. If you think about that, the first touching phones or the first video streaming services, the first instances of those technologies were far from being appealing. Everybody remember the iPhone, Netflix. But But before that, it, it was way less appealing. But then came the iPhone. Enters Netflix and boom. Absolutely. So to and to me, what we called modern AI, or more specifically machine learning, which is a subset of AI, that's amongst those technologies. Things that are doing things today, maybe worse when you compare that to your well, all processes and technologies and, and etc. But that has this disruptive capacity. Right.
1: And the oh. question. Oh, sorry. No, (laughs) by all means, please continue. I just, I'm hearing you talk here and I just, I just finished a podcast episode with a Patriot of yours, a colleague of yours, rather, you know, Clint Hawking, UB Toronto, and and he did this wonderful interview with, you know, Ted Price on the Game Maker's Notebook. Uh, So Game Maker's Notebook is for anyone listening who hasn't heard it. Again, another wonderful podcast about, you know, whatever, the art and science of making video games. And you know, Clint was talking in particular about a lot of the foundational work and and this sort of tech work that needed to go into you know Watch Dogs Legion and and sort of what could and couldn't be done kind of procedurally or with ML and AI and that kind of thing, and he used the example that I just want to share of you know the uncanny valley. And, you know, having to not just Uncanny Valley as it applied to like, oh, well, does this character look human, but Mm -hmm. rather the whole experience of the NPC, the lines, the movement, the facial animation, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that they had to just leap. And they had to just leap across that valley knowing that they might only catch the bottom rung of the yeah. ladder climbing up the other side. And that it was going to be a grueling battle. But at some point in time, you know, those were battles that had to be fight. And that was, you know, a, a ladder that had to be climbed. And I hear you and I hear Clint and I can tell that UB has drunk that Kool-Aid, right? That as an yeah. organization, you guys are definitely... Jumping across that void and looking at ways to systematically leverage technology to, you know, move things forward. And you're not afraid of the chasm in between. Exactly. <clears throat> and and uh, we had a
0: discussion with, with Clint at the beginning of uh, Warjox Vision to see how we could think the way we we help make this game differently. And what's fascinating is to see how technology has changed in only a few years. And if we were able to start, let's say, Watch a Legion over again, the yeah. production side, we would have way more powerful tools of course. to go further in, in only a few years. Yeah. And that's a problem we're trying to solve at LaForge, which is when you're a successful company, you have solid processes, you have your well-oiled organization and etc. How do you explore those potentially disruptive technologies or topics? How do you make sure that you are able to test them so that creative people like Clint are able you know, to take them and, and push them further of to participate to the experience of the player. And when you do that, when you explore the, those areas, more importantly, so you have this successful company, how do you incorporate those prototypes, those potentially disruptive technologies, topics, how right. do you incorporate that into your core activity. Right. And talking about that, when you want to to get, you know, new ideas and if you want to get a sense of, to scout simply such topics, you can do that in academia because after work, after all, those people work, the people who work in universities, they aim to create knowledge. And so they create new knowledge all the time. But the problem is that the journey from the theoretical research to a product in between, you have the, the, which is something like the Valley probably, mm-hmm. but to me, it's a, it's a gap of wasted ideas somehow, mm-hmm. because the research focuses on creating knowledge and we focus on creating games. We do not talk the same talk and we do not walk the same walk. Mm-hmm. And the idea of LaForge is really to bridge this gap that is between the academic world and, and, and Ubisoft and be a platform that serves really genuinely both interests. Mm. For example, when we started in um 2008, we were we started working with um Joshua Benjo. I oh,
1: don't yes. know if you know him. Oh, okay. yes. How, so uh, he, he, you almost can't work in Montreal in technology and not know about Joshua oh, Benjo. I mean, oh, he's, yeah. He's
0: he's he's a bit of a superstar. Totally. He's a rock star of of AI. Totally. And um we had, a, in, back in 2011, I think, we had an industrial chair and we discovered two things at that time, which is deep learning had the potential to shake many pillars in our society, not only games, but also that having researchers and developers work together, honestly, it feels like herding cats. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and so that's why we created La Forge at the end of the industrial chair in 2016. We wanted to create that as a space to serve both interests by design. So it's a place where people from Ubisoft, anybody, can come and try new ideas through prototyping, always based on the less academic results. So if you want to try, let's say, text-to-speech or new ways to think about animations or whatever, you try it. And the other way around, the academic researchers or students, PhDs, they can experiment at La Forge, and we give them access to everything.
1: Yeah, exactly. Absolutely,
0: everything, just like our employees do. Yeah, The data, the expert technologies, and that's really to get this space of common objectives and common vocabulary.
1: So, I mean, La Forge has been around now for, you said, since 2016? So yeah, five about years. Five years? Yes. I, you know, I have... An old friend, I think, who you were closely with, Olivier pomarez Yes. Hi, Pom. Hope you're doing well. <laughs> and so, in those five years, you know, you've probably had some standout learnings. You know, obviously, some of them are about you know ways that sort of academia and you know whatever game productions can work together. You've talked a little bit about that. You've probably you know had some learnings about maybe the types of problems that are more easily solved by this kind of collaboration, or Mm -hmm. maybe the types of problems that are more easily solved by the application of ML and AI. So, I mean, obviously, you know, there's some stuff you can't talk about, but is there anything there that you can share in terms of, you know, really interesting learnings over the last five years? Sure.
0: Let's take a step back just so so that we're sure everybody's on the same page. We, We talk about AI versus machine learning. So, The the traditional approach of programming and AI uses a lot of rules and decision trees. It's the approach of, if this, then do that. Conversely, machine learning relies on data to serve as examples to generalize. It's more the, do something with this input based on all the data you saw previously. That's this kind of approach. So when you compare both methods, it means that machine learning offers way more scalability mm-hmm. in terms of system, but also less control because it always relies on probabilities and not rules. That's right. So the first thing that we learned is that it's not a disruptive technology. It's a disruptive way to think how we work, how we interact with machines. Because awesome. approaching approaching that on a pure technical lens, it's like missing what smartphones change to cell phone users we, we barely have phone calls on our smartphones right
1: <laughs> unless we have Air, airpods in or something like that i literally exactly. i hate holding a phone up to my ear now like i just it just drives me crazy so yes i agree exactly what you're saying there
0: so that's that was for us the, the first line learning don't make it a technical topic it, it has to be a feature discussion uh, and f- from the bottom up, and everything that comes with it, and, and do that as soon as possible. Bring in people around the table from very uh, different profiles and, and opinions. Okay. The second thing is that there is no topic or craft that machine learning is not shaking very profoundly. I mean, it's from for all craft. Great. Um, for us, AI is often uh, in, our, in the industry. It's often a, a synonym for NPC. And when we're talking about, you know, AI, 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 people think that, okay, we are going to change the way NPCs or avatars will behave in games. It's way more than that because there are plenty of opportunities to be found, even in project management, HR, tooling, texturing, uh, animation, and and etc. Every aspect uh, of what we're doing. Basically, any craft that deals with data, even remotely, uh, will profoundly changed and is profoundly changing and finally i would say that we also discovered that it's now relatively easy to come up with a mind-blowing prototype and if you follow what's happening in in startups and and uh, there's not a single week and sometimes not a single day where you have this new company uh, communicating on on youtube or elsewhere uh, that you know that have mind-blowing features that will uh, change everything. The issue is that when you do that, doing that is somehow relatively easy. It's easy to have this mind-blowing prototype uh, and get a lot of wow effects. But to transform that prototype into something that's really relevant and really useful, there's a lot more effort. We're only scratching the surface when we show our, our prototypes. It requires also a lot of energy to lead the change, changing the way we work, making sure that we're not, you know, we're pushing the envelope on how we can use those new, not technologies, those new features, those new capabilities. Mm-hmm. It's like making sure that when we create the iPhone, when we create smartphones, people understand that it's not only uh, to get phone calls. And That's how right. do you change that? That's really uh, the idea. So to to me, what we learned after five years is that we probably just tackled the uh, easiest problems okay, so great. far.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of the the 20 rule. It sounds yeah. like the you know these features that feel so incredible are are probably twenty percent of the work, and then to get that last twenty percent to kind of go into a production scale feature set, even if you know the end result is not significantly more spectacular. But it's stable, it's repeatable, Mm. you know, it's easy to use, it's well integrated, it's affordable. You know, all of those nagging problems is probably at least 80% of the work. Totally.
0: But on top of that, you need also to reinvent many different things. Like, let's say, think about text-to-speech, for example. Today, text-to-speech, you're able to generate a voice based on text and uh, you can get many products or features to, let's say, get different emotions or intentions in the Mm -hmm. voice. And the way to do that generally is you have this uh, drop-down menu and you select the the intention, whether it's a joy, neutral, whatever. But is it the kind of interface that's really opening new doors in terms of how we interact and how we leverage AI to create new things? When... Uh, I worked with actors, for example, they're able to convey a lot of subtle emotions. How do we approach that? What is the kind of UI, of interface, of parameters that you give in the hands of creators so that we can really push the envelope beyond creating more lines with, you know, three or five basic emotions? Yeah. And that's the part where we're only scratching the surface. So far, we have improved many ingredients. Now it's time to reinvent the recipe. Okay.
1: So I love the fact that you said that AI and ML is potentially disrupting all disciplines. So the question that I wrote here, and I'd love to kind of play through this with you, is once upon a time, like let's go back into when I was at Ubisoft, right? If, uh, you know, creative director said, okay, you know, this scene isn't working, we need a young girl here, you know, 12 years old, and you know, whatever, wearing a backpack, I'm just making this up as I go. Mm -hmm. You know, then there's a lot of steps, obviously, okay, the character concept artists have to, you know, whatever concept out the girl and, you know, maybe the narrative director is, you know, working with them and kind of writing out her bio and what she likes and what she doesn't like and who this person is and what she's feeling and all that sort of stuff. You've got, you know, the character modelers who are, you know, modeling this, this thing. So now this character exists in 3D, you know, it's getting textured, it, 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 you know, it's looking good. You've got the animators, the technical animators who are kind of rigging the character. So now, you know, now this character has the potential to move. You have the animators, maybe the mocap animators who are actually collecting mocap for this character. So now this character is, you know, has a, a variety of moves that that she can do. You probably have some sort of technical designer or someone who's integrating the character, you know, a scripter or something like that, who's integrating the character into the mission. You know, you've got audio who's recording lines, maybe, you know, an audio designer or someone like that, or a dialogue designer who's, you know, recording lines for this character. And then, you know, someone who's mixing those lines in. So, I mean, it's, you know, I've skipped over obviously a bunch of steps, but by and large, you know, like you said, there's probably 10 different disciplines involved and you know, possibly months of work involved in something as simple as I want a girl who walks up to the protagonist here and says, you know, whatever, hey man, you know, can I have a, you know, whatever, can I buy those sunglasses off you or something? So, can we dive in a little bit deeper into any of the specific areas that La Forge has explored in the last five years mm-hmm. to help optimize? kind of something like that specific pipeline, you know, something that the player sure. and I, ideally most of our listeners will understand so we can have a concrete example of how AI has helped, you know, fundamentally change that that laborious process.
0: Sure. So what you described is really the way most gaming companies work. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we're taking this step back, it's why do we work like that? We work like that because... We found this recipe, right, and we improved that over times, and then we somehow created those silos, those ten different or more disciplines that are trying. All all of them are trying to improve that. So, if you're, I don't know, creative director or whoever, ask for uh, this character, the the character gets more uh, polygons in terms of uh, to have more realistic, uh, as a more realistic model, to have a more realistic uh, facial animation to have a more realistic uh, voices and, and etc. But what it means is that each silo uh, is improving its own output yes. somehow. What I think is that in not that many years, it would change. You, you will have, let's say, a, a character designer who could potentially be entirely autonomous into creating and uh, animating such a character. So... But to do that, you know, it's not only providing a new tool, it's also changing the way we work. And still, we will need our expertise and experts in each of those domains. But for many characters, you will be able to create that uh, with a few clicks and with accelerating from the intention to the final result. But that's really what the AI is good at. Mm-hmm. To do that, what we're trying to do at La Forge is to always balance trying to put new tools in the hands uh, of the different experts, uh, like uh, voice designers uh, can now play with text-to-speech, which can uh, accelerate uh, their part of the process. Uh, we have we have, uh, built a technology that's able to create an HD uh, head uh, fully animated two to- or ten times faster than with uh, traditional methods. So first, we're we're getting, you know, in this pipeline, we're diminishing by 10 the time it takes for each step. Okay, great. But more importantly, what we're trying to do is to make sure that each step is connected so that you can either use one of the vertical, you can use the Mm -hmm. head modeling uh, prototype that we created, and you can still animate that by hands if you feel that you have to as a creator. But conversely, if you want to use text-to-speech to -to animation, you can do that as well. So Mm -hmm. your character, Mm -hmm. you pick up a voice, you tap a line, and the final result, it's an HD character, fully animated, that's, that's talking to you. And that we keep always both possibilities. That's really the key idea. So we've been working in many areas for that in terms of improving the way we create textures, we create heads. Animations also is something where we think we're pretty strong to create animation systems. Well, to get rid actually of the animation systems as a plural. You know that when you create a a game, you're always switching between different clips of animation or different animation mm-hmm. systems, trying to blend that and it creates some issues. So we've created a system called Choreograph, where you just throw all the mock-up data that you have, and then you get a character that can move around and sit down and acknowledge the other NPC and even potentially parkour at some point in time very easily all you have to do is really throw data uh, that looks like the kind of style that you want to have and uh, the ai takes uh do, do the rest uh, for you so it's way easier to iterate when uh, when you want to try things uh, in mm. the game and, and try, uh, try what works and what's not working but on top of that it's also adds uh, a, a sense of more believable animations you don't have the you know the glitches that
1: Yep, we all experience in, in games. <laughs> I mean, I worked for gosh five years on Prince of Persia. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
1: Probably had at our peak forty, maybe thirty-five to forty animators, mm-hmm. often hand animating. You know, all the transitions, all the blends. You know, for all of the characters, particularly the prince. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you said it earlier, you know, if Clint and his team were to restart Legion today, it would be a totally different production. Yeah. I just can't even imagine restarting Prince of Persia today with uh, yeah. with that animation tool you just described. So it leads me to, I guess, this next question, uh, w- which is maybe a little bit, well, there's a pathway whereby this next question gets dark. But hopefully, you know, hopefully that that doesn't end up coming to be, before we started recording, you and I were talking about the, you know, the episode with David Usher. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we were talking primarily about that as a, you know, him as a musician, but of course the main focus of that Usher, of that David Usher interview was the creative process and AI's role or AI's potential to like significantly disrupt that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, David obviously has some very interesting perspective on how human AI creative collaborations can work where AI is useful, where AI is, you know, not useful or where he thinks, you know, what he called it was the rough edges. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, we like the rough edges a li- as humans. We like the rough edges in our creativity and our entertainment. And AI is maybe not so great at that. And, hum- you know, humans are better. Mm-hmm. But he also talked a lot about, you know, the loss of scarcity, right? Right. Yeah. And the sort of almost the potential to disempower creatives in a hypothetical world where AI can, you know, do all of this. So, talk me through what happens to the 35 or 40 animators of a hypothetical Prince of Persia futuristic game when there's an AI powered tool that does a lot of the work they used to do by hand for them, possibly better than they could do themselves. What does that mean for the future of game developers?
0: That's an excellent question, and that's why at La Forge we are not working on those technologies solely on the, uh, from a technical standpoint. But we actually have a strong opinions in terms of making sure that everything we do at La Forge, we all, always do that. in We prototype somehow in a very responsible manner. So mm-hmm. h- how do we do that? Let's think about like what 15 years ago, 20 mm-hmm. years ago, 15 years ago, when we first introduced motion capture
1: yeah.
0: a- and at Ubisoft. The-, the first reaction from animators was that they thought they would disappear. They saw motion capture as a threat, actually. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's a tool, and the tool makes sense when it's used by people who know animation, who have this expertise. Mm-hmm. And they were able to take this expertise they learned and acquired and were renowned about the expertise of keyframing, let go of the keyframing technique to go to another technique that is motion capture. So to me, by the end of the day, animators will just have another tool to create more amazing experiences but it doesn't mean that the other tools won't be relevant it means that some tools will accelerate uh, their work so that they can focus on more interesting and put a lot of love in some sure. specific okay. animations or conversely it can open new doors to create new navigation systems for example but they will decide
1: yeah all right i think i i thought that's what you were going to say and i'm glad you said it and i buy it I am not an AI doomsdayist who thinks that it's going to be, you know, the end of creativity and the end of, you know, human employment as we know it. I agree with you. It, it's another tool. And I think what it will lead to is just an overall increase in quality mm-hmm. across the gaming experiences. So it seems to me, like, so you talk about how all departments can use AI, and but it, or, you know, the, the potential is there across almost every discipline. But it does seem like there are some areas where AI is a bit of a more natural fit. Like, obviously, I think, you know, tech and coding probably kind of gets it really well. People on the more technical crafts like animation, you know, like we were talking about earlier, or audio probably get it pretty well. I mean, what about, you know, whatever, design or level design? I mean, what about disciplines that typically are more firmly in the sort of creative domain, maybe a little bit less you know, technical or implementation or execution sort of focused. Do you have any interesting stories there about kind of particular sort of breakthroughs in new ways that designers or level designers are working because of AI?
0: Yes, totally. The, I think that the, it, it's starting, right? The thing is that it will really be fully visible when we find ways to accept losing control on some aspect of the design or where it makes sense to lose control to create new interactive experience, like think about systemic designs, for mm-hmm. example, things like that. I think of two examples uh, that can really open new doors. GPT-3 is a technology from OpenAI, and I think we discussed that also with David. Yes. It's able to write full text based on very simple inputs, such as, let's say, an overall meaning and uh, an example in terms of, of style. And it's able to write meaningful uh, text. So imagine that using such technologies, You're able to add a lot more diversity, let's say, in dialogues, or you can even have real-time dialogues happening instead of trying to bake them Mm. up front. So when you're doing that, you might uh, get, in terms of design, you have the possibility to create uh, fully interactive characters with a lot of systemic elements into that, simply because you don't need to you know, have the text uh, being prepared and recorded, etc. Just a few inputs, a few examples of style, it's open up new uh, new examples. So that's the tr- kind of thing that we're trying to see and how we can use that to, by the end of the day, make sense. We're playing with this kind of, of concept. Another one, which we have dug into uh, quite a lot, it's called reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. So... And I think it's going to be the, the next horizon for design reinforcement learning. It's a very specific branch of machine learning where instead of training an agent with data and with a lot of example, you train the agents with a set of objectives, rewards, and punishments in the simulation. You train that over again. So at some point, you are able to shape a desired behavior. So right. the potential is huge because not only does it change how we define behaviors or interaction, it also allows to reinvent how systems can interact in a fully systematic way that way. With that, what we tried uh, with uh, have two different agents, uh, like two classes of characters with different powers and things like that, and we were able to have them collaborate and create collaborating strategies we wouldn't have thought about to reach common or different objectives. So really, we had some interesting gameplay uh, emerge from simply uh, having different class of characters collaborating. That's the kind of thing that we're wow. going to see more and more in terms of design. But once again, you need to be fully comfortable
1: with the fact that you're losing some sort of control. I mean, it's I, you are describing being a parent, designers yes. <laughs> as digital parents. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly that. <laughs> you can nudge, you can nurture, you can punish, you can reinforce, but at the end of the day, you're letting your agent run wild in a simulation. <laughs> exactly. Well, and sometimes it's not a
0: situation, it's not a simulation. It's, uh, you know, the, your room and uh, your kitties
1: are putting a lot of mess around. Yeah. And believe me, I don't let them play too much with my guitars. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Wow. Okay, that's really interesting. I love that example. So, I mean, AI. You know, anyone who's dug into AI, anyone who's even tried to work with AI at a sort of rudimentary level, really quickly runs up against probably one of two problems. The first problem they they probably run, run up against is you know it is just a completely different way of thinking about how to solve problems. So, you know, a lot of that was a lesson that a lot of people kind of probably learned. You know, whatever it is, eight years ago or something like that, where You know, they would just try and slap AI onto an existing problem and then just find that they couldn't think about it the same way and get the results they were looking for. Obviously, certain people with kind of expertise in AI, you know, have been evolving and there is this sort of of impression, you know, that to work with AI, you need like the large team of like hyper expensive data scientists and like data researchers and, you know, AI developers and that kind of thing. The other challenge that anyone who's worked with AI has just, encountered is data sets, right? Like your results are only going to be as good as the scope of your data set permits them to be. You know, you can have, you know, a great problem and, you know, really, you know, incomplete data and your model is just going to suck, right? It's not going to be any good. And so that loss of control is going to be so big that the end result almost feels, you know, Useless. So like, how do you see those two challenges evolving as it comes to the sort of democratization of AI and game development? Are we going to see small teams, small indie developers without access to, you know, LaFelge or large data sets still benefiting from the kinds of power and the kinds of opportunities that we've been discussing for the last, you know, 45 minutes?
0: I see different types of situations, obviously. The the first, if we talk about the final users, so people will have more and more access to such tools. I don't know if you saw the latest version of Photoshop, for Mm -hmm. example, and it contains some very advanced AI features to change the sky in a picture, for example, or apply style or even change the edge of a person. Mm -hmm. So we can expect AI to democratize many applications that were only accessible to few. But it's also bring the question of the control over those tools. And it's also linked to the question of scarcity that you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, with such powerful tools, it's easier to change the sky in a picture. And I would not be surprised to see a lot of pictures with fancy skies in the near future. But is it democratized? Yes, somehow. But at the expense of, of some sort of creativity and diversity, maybe, in this situation. The second is more AI as a discipline. And I think it will be more and more accessible. Today, it sounds like it requires to have a PhD and, uh, and to, to deep dive for years into very uh, complicated uh, mathematical concepts. But more and more, I think, of whether on from an education or academic standpoint uh, or through a more open source's library tooling, it will be more and more accessible to technical people, I should say, or even non-technical people to try new things, to try new features, like applying some algorithm to a different type of data sets or try to tune some reinforcement learning set of parameters to reach another objective. And mm-hmm. what and we're working hard actually to make sure that that's accessible. So I think that part will be will still uh, be more and more accessible. But finally, when we're talking about development of tailored AI, so something that would be really specific to create some a brand new experience, a brand new feature, I feel that it will likely remain in the hands of few, mm-hmm. because it requires to have under the same roof. You need to have the, the cutting edge expertise. You need to have, as you mentioned, access to a lot of data. You need to have access to a crazy computing power to train the models, and I don't see that being fully decentralized anytime soon. If you if you think simply about that, and if you're curious about AI scientific publications, most of them cannot be reproduced and. Because even when the algorithms are disclosed, the data sets are not accessible. And that's true for most of the scientific publication.
1: That's where we're in when we're talking about scientific publications. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about virtual beings for a second. Let's talk Uh about digital twins. So imagine a hypothetical, you know, Watchdogs Legion 3. Okay, so five, ten years in the future, something like that obviously, you know, the NPCs in that world will be hugely powered by AI and they shouldn't feel like I'm talking to AI. They should feel like I'm talking to a hypothetical citizen of uh, futuristic London who are walking about the street, going about their daily lives. Maybe I can, maybe I can't take control of them, but they should feel real. They should have wants and needs and plans and kind of paths that they're on, and they should kind of have their lives that are all, you know, intertwining. And a lot of that will be powered by AI, and 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 I shouldn't necessarily see that. Now, if I could click a button and capture myself, take a photo mm-hmm. of myself, and boom, I have a nearly photorealistic AI avatar of myself in that world, and, you know, record myself talking for, you know, 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is, and boom, have a, you know, near perfect audio copy a voice skin, as it were, of my voice attached to that avatar. You know, I'm starting to begin to approach having a digital twin, right? Who I, I can kind of say, represent me. I'm going and doing something else. Now, if that digital twin starts to learn from me, you know, again, privacy and all of that sort of stuff aside, imagine it's always listening. And it's always learning mm-hmm. from me. And it's always Understanding how I talk, and it's always understanding how I play. Eventually, it's going to become, you know, through reinforcement learning, right? It's going to become a better and better agent representing me. And at a certain point in time, you know, to to someone who doesn't know me deeply, that digital twin could almost be mistaken for me, right? Like it, it mm-hmm. could represent me in a digital platform relatively well. Now, in that case. I definitely want people to know that's AI. I want the word AI, Ben, slathered across that person's, you know, name, tattooed on their face to make it 100% clear that you're not talking to the real Ben here. You might be talking to an agent who represents me, but you're not talking to the real me. And so if this person says or does anything offensive because I don't have complete control over it, you know, like... We can follow up afterwards when I connect back online. So there are certain cases, particularly when it comes to this kind of digital twin idea, where I feel like as a player, I want to know when I'm talking to AI and I want the fact that it's AI to be front and center.
0: Yeah, I hear you. And actually, it's more a question of, if you think about that, it's more a question of context and design. Because today, some companies are using. Okay, I have this very concrete example from a game that's made in China by a very uh, huge uh, gaming company there. They have this uh, shooter, and it's a competitive shooter on mobile. So when you play this competitive shooter, at some point, if you're losing too many matches, they will create what they call a consolation match uh, where they put you in front of bots, so basically AIs, and they don't tell it to you. So, you don't know that you're playing against AIs. You think you're playing against players. And obviously, the AIs are set so that because it's a consolation match, uh, you've lost a couple of matches against real human. We add a couple of matches against AIs so that there's more retention in the game. Confidence booster. Exactly. So, it's already happening. And it's more a question of design and intention from the, the creators than really question of technology. When, a few years ago, Google presented their assistant. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember. I when remember they, that, yeah. They, Book me they, a haircut phone or call. whatever it is. Exactly. One thing that struck me back then was that in this example, you had one of the most important AI companies and you had the CEO of this company presenting the spearhead technology products they're pushing. And when they do that, never in this um, demonstration, the AI said, "I'm not a real human." Mm-hmm. The example was made some, to somehow dupe the um, the hairdresser or, or or what's not. So it's really more on the intention side of the equation uh, from the creator's perspective. But there's also something based on uh, when we're talking about digital twin. Let's say you have this digital twin now. What would you trust these digital twin? to do and and not. Would you let this digital twin buy a house for you? Although, if you think about that, the criteria for a house, a new house, are pretty simple to model. Would you let the digital twin buy something for you? So it's also the context of usage. In some cases, you might be comfortable having a, a digital version of you acting somehow on your behalf, like companies do when we're using chatbots. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are they saying when they're using chatbots? They they say, we're comfortable that this chatbot represents us. But when it comes to more, some specific interactions, you do not trust the AI anymore and you put the human back in loop. So I I think it's important to, it's not a question of, of labeling AI or not. I don't like the word, ethics, because it's heavy. It carries a lot of things. But we definitely need to think that upfront, all those questions upfront, and not trying to adapt to that. I would hate to be in a situation where the technology is able to create such perfect digital version of yourself, whether it's in terms of model, voice, and behavior, and etc., that we need to react by adding a sticker, saying, hey, it's a fake me. Actually, that's what's happening with deepfakes, uh, if you think about that, where you Mm. can have your face uh, put on on whatever kind of video, and that's devastating. So uh, that's why I think it's more something to uh, handle upfront, Mm. definitely.
1: Yeah, I hope you're right. And I hope you're right that these systems will be designed very thoughtfully. And because obviously we can see it's very easy to imagine the damage that can be done mm-hmm. to the world if we somehow stumble, if we let ourselves stumble into a world of digital twins. <laughs> it's very easy to see how that could go bad. I've got two last questions here I'd like to try and close out on. So one is, I guess, a little bit about today and one is about, you know, five years from today. So so looking at today, Just one or two, what are some sticky challenges in game production that AI currently can't solve? Like, what's an example of something, you know, maybe that you guys tried to fix with AI that you failed and that, you know, you think in a few years with better data, better models, better changes in the stack of the pipeline, or just sort of general education amongst the developers, you know, sort of being able to let go a little bit more, as it were, you know, that we might be in a better position to to try and fix using AI or ML.
0: Yeah, sure. The kind of thing which is difficult today is uh, referring to the uh, uncanny valley. It's that some areas are more advanced, like your uh, animation uh, modeling today, or uh, it's almost solved by AI, whereas text-to-speech, for example, works extremely well for some types of voices, like neutral voices. Mm -hmm. You cannot hear a difference. But when it comes to trying to add more variety in terms of emotion, intention, that's where AI breaks, uh, basically for the moment. But in five years from now, I think that what we will see is more integrated systems. So in other words, each ingredient like text-to-speech will have a a way better quality with a wider range of emotion and subtlety, for example, but also different ways to interact with those systems. Referring to the text-to-speech once again, today it's really pretty much like one of the five basic emotions and and that's it. But when in five years, what I see is that when you want to create uh, such a character, you will have access to other types of interfaces that we need to think of. Mm-hmm. And the uh, consequence of that is that it's, it means tools that will be easier to use for game creators, but probably also for user-generated content. Yes. So, so what I mean is that today, it's still accelerating crafts and discipline. That's really the, the key of it. And in five years, that's when we're going to see you know real... New experiences, whether it's in from the game creators' perspective or the gamers' perspective. Very cool.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that you boom, you just answered one and two in 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 both of my closing questions in one. So that was a wonderful, a wonderful closing sentiment. I think, Eve. Any anything you thought we were going to touch upon that we didn't? Any areas you were hoping to explore on this podcast that we didn't get a chance to dive into?
0: Not really. I mean. Uh, what I like about you know video game and, and such topic is that gaming industry is always about colliding art, design, and technology, and, and what's happening is just uh, has been exciting for the last twenty years, and I hope it's going to be uh, as exciting for the next twenty years. I'm sure about that. Uh, and front that that is is a uh, is a uh, is, is fantastic yes. experience.
1: I, it has. It's been a wonderful ride for. I've been in the gaming industry now for about twenty years. It's It's been a wonderful twenty years. I'm looking forward to the next twenty. <laughs> yeah. It's, cer- it's certainly a very exciting place to work. There's never a boring day. Well, Eve, again, thank you very, very much. Thanks for sharing insight into. Ubisoft, the scale and scope of that huge, wonderful, chaotic machine. The production services department, La Forge, your thoughts about AI, how it can support game development, how it can support gamers. It's been a wonderful conversation. I got out of it exactly what I was looking for. So, so thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your insight. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ben. All right. Talk to you soon. And as we wrap up yet another episode of the podcast, I want to take the time to thank Eve for joining me. Obviously I am biased. I spent many years at Ubisoft. I am still a big fan of Ubisoft and everything that they do. So hopefully that bias didn't shine through too clearly in this conversation. But I do genuinely think that the work that even and his team is doing at La Forge is unique inside the industry and something that is really worthy of attention. Uh, this, this role of, of trying to f- create a bridge between academia and production and creating really interesting state-of-the-art tools that are used by the production teams to help improve the quality of the games that we play is one that I think is very, very important. And I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Eve and that it opened your eyes a little bit to some of the really innovative new ways that AI is changing how we make games for now and tomorrow and into the future. If you enjoyed this conversation, please don't hesitate to subscribe to the podcast, recommend it to your friends. We really enjoy getting feedback from you all, letting us know what episodes you like the best, what subjects and guests you found the most enlightening. It's why we do it. So please don't hesitate to reach out. It means the world to us. With that, have a wonderful evening and we'll talk to you again very soon.